Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. It's really true. Like, I actually, I do little quizzes once in a while, and I'll be like, Charlie, are you thinking about science? I and am. Like, she is. Just like, at that moment. Move it's on. amazing. So... In this episode, we're going to talk about two dark influences on the history of science fiction, two men who were powerful editors and influential writers before World War II, and whose reputations lived on long after their deaths. We're talking about H.P. Lovecraft, editor of Weird Tales and inventor of the Cthulhu mythos, and John Campbell, editor of Astounding Stories and friend to golden age science fiction giants like Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, and L. Ron Hubbard. In fact, Campbell was the first guy to publish Dianetics in the pages of Astounding. So we'll be talking about why these two men were so powerful, but also why there's a backlash against them right now, and how we can reclaim their contributions without falling prey to their racism and sexism. We are incredibly lucky to have an interview that Charlie Jane did with Alec Neville Lee, author of a book called Astounding, which chronicles the life of Campbell and his inner circle. All right, here's the show. by talking about the recent controversy over Lovecraft and Campbell, uh, which happened at the most recent Hugo Awards, the 2020 Hugos. So Charlie Jane, give us a quick thumbnail sketch of what the deal is. So the important backstory you need to know is that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and John W. Campbell have both been kind of recently removed from some of the iconography around the awards. Uh, there was actually the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, which was a big deal in the science fiction world. And after a blistering and incredible and just mind-blowingly awesome speech by Jeanette Ng, talking about how Campbell was a fascist. And that was at last year's Hugo Awards. That was at 2019 in in the Hugo Awards. Basically, everybody realized that it was kind of a scandal that this major award was named after somebody who actually did say things like, we should bring back slavery, and, you know, did kind of express really extremely radical racist and fascist views, especially toward the end of his life. And so his name was taken off the award. And meanwhile... Around the same time, the World Fantasy Award, which for a long time had been a bust of H.P. Lovecraft, like the actual physical award, had been a bust of H.P. Lovecraft by artist Gayanne Wilson. A really horrible bust, by the way. Like Gayanne Wilson's art is very caricaturish, and it's it's kind of it's not a good example of his art, though. It doesn't. It's not a particularly nice example of his work, and it's it is very ugly and kind of disturbing to look at because it's kind of this caricature of this kind of ugly, gross, weird guy. And it's also a representation of this famous, again, super intense racist who had really kind of disturbing views on a lot of stuff. And so basically the that award statue of this guy, H.P. Lovecraft, was changed into a kind of a nice tree or something, I think. 
basically this year in 2020, first of all, the retro Hugos, which celebrate, you know, people from the past, from the 1940s when there were conventions, but there was no Hugo Awards. The retro Hugos award gave awards to both H.P. Lovecraft and John W. Campbell. And then at the actual non-retro Hugos, the regular Hugo Awards, uh, presenters George R. R. Martin and uh, Robert Silverberg both kind of went out of their way to talk about Lovecraft and Campbell in glowing terms and kind of defend their legacy. Since we had just kind of purged them a little bit from the landscape of, of awards and, and all that stuff, people were not happy with that. There was a lot of backlash. There was a lot of anger about feeling like, you know, we just had this debate. We just talked about how we don't want these men to be honored as part of our community. Not, We're not saying their memories should be erased, but we don't want them to be honored uh, like statues. And suddenly it was being shoved in our faces again, like, but these guys were great. And so people were pissed. I actually just read a book about John W. Campbell called Astounding by Alec Neville Ali, and we actually have an interview with him later in the episode. And basically, John W. Campbell was this incredibly influential editor who edited Astounding magazine and helped to create kind of Isaac Asimov and L. Ron Hubbard and Robert A. Heinlein. But Annalie, who was H.P. Lovecraft and why do we still care about him? Like Campbell, H.P. Lovecraft was a really important editor in the science fiction world, especially in the late 20s when his uh, short stories became pretty popular, and in the early 1930s when he was an editor at Weird Tales, which was a very uh, influential pulp magazine that published a new type of science fiction. It published a lot of horror cosmic horror as it was known at the time and is still kind of known that way. And he was really at the center of a big group of writers um, who came out of amateur press associations. So basically the 1920s and teens equivalent of fandom today. And they were trading stories back and forth through the mail and, you know, mimeographed magazines through the mail that were actually called fanzines. And the term zine comes from fanzines that they were making back then. He influenced a lot of writers of his era. And in his nonfiction writing, he talks about how he is a chalk white racist. That's his term. And his fiction, which I think is probably more important to his legacy than his editing of Weird Tales, his fiction includes inventing the Cthulhu mythos. And the figure of Cthulhu continues to haunt a lot of science fiction and a lot of horror today. Basically, it's a giant tentacly god that lurks sleeping at the bottom of the sea. He is a remnant of an alien race that once inhabited the Earth if you read a lot of Lovecraft, as I have, you kind of get the whole backstory on how Cthulhu got here, and there were all these different alien groups, and they were fighting, and the spawn of Cthulhu are actually kind of a degraded, marginalized alien group. There were these other aliens that were kind of equivalent to the ancient Greeks or Romans who created these vast cities underground, and they've kind of died out and been replaced by these more degraded, terrible, you know, savage creatures. And Lovecraft stories have this kind of mood to them, this dreamy, tentacly, 
mood that I can't quite, you know, sum up easily, but it's it's really become a big trope, this idea of like a tentacled monster that's kind of lurking at the edge of consciousness that's driving us mad. And in Lovecraft stories, these creatures are almost always associated with immigration. They're associated with uh, marginal groups. They're associated with Africans and Caribbeans. And a lot of the time they're explicitly connected with miscegenation. The spawn of Cthulhu want to come ashore and have sex with your women, um, especially in tiny New England towns. And there are a lot of stories where people who visit these New England towns discover that there's these oddly fish-looking people who turn out to be these you know, half-breed creatures who are part Cthulhu spawn and part human. And it really was Lovecraft's explicit intention to use this to talk about the, what he viewed as the racial history of the world and the racialized history of the world. And in his view, of course, white people should be on top and anything that deviated from that looked like a tentacled fish, you know, like literally. You know, there's a lot of reasons why he's been rejected. Um, but today, you know, his overt racism is absolutely unacceptable. It's not the, frankly, not the direction that the horror genre has gone. You know, it's just his views are sort of the path not taken. And yet, a lot of his imagery and tropes continue to be very much alive. So you and I have been talking a lot about how there's been a resurgence of Lovecraftiana um, among science fiction writers, and they're all responding to his racism. I mean, there's a lot of Black authors who are playing with uh, Lovecraft tropes, and of course, explicitly, like Lovecraft Country, Jordan Peele's new miniseries is dealing with basically racism and tentacles. Sherry Priest's uh, novel Maplecroft is a kind of feminist twist on um, Lovecraftian creatures. What are some other ones, Charlie? Well, okay. So more recently, obviously, uh, N.K. Jemisin published The City We Became, which is all about Lovecraftian monsters. And around the same time, Silvia Moreno-Garcia published uh, Mexican Gothic, which is all about, again, tentacle monsters and weird kind of interdimensional creatures and intrusions. And also, uh, Victor Laval published a highly acclaimed and award-nominated novella called The Ballad of Black Tom, which is kind of a retelling of one of Lovecraft's stories from the point of view of a, of a Black character. It's so interesting that we're seeing the exact kinds of people who are treated as monsters in Lovecraft's work turning around and saying like, nope, actually, this is this is ours. Like, we're going to now take over these tropes and turn them into something really different while still playing with the same issues, playing with issues around race and immigration, but just turning them on their head. And one of the things that's interesting to think about with Lovecraft, and I think um, this is kind of where we can leave off, is that Lovecraft had kind of, he'd been very popular in the 30s, and he'd kind of slipped out of public view. You know, he was still appreciated by fans of the genre, but he started to get republished in the 1960s, long after his death. His short stories were republished in a couple of very influential collections in the 1960s, right around the same time that Lord of the Rings was uh, brought out in a mass market paperback in the United States. So there's a whole generation of basically um, young hippie kids who were discovering 
Lord of the Rings and Lovecraft at around the same time. And they were both these sort of powerful fantasy mythos cycles um, that really appealed to people who were looking for something that was really cosmic and really, you know, out of this world. And, you know, right. It was trippy and kind of cool and weird and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And especially Lovecraft, because Lovecraft stuff really is trippy. Uh, There's a lot of just things like colors that can't be named and like madness that descends upon us and like turns our geometry into something that's unseeable and unknowable and like just crazy shit. You know, whereas Lord of the Rings, of course, is this, you know, evokes this kind of bucolic, hippie-ish countryside where everybody's smoking pot and (laughs) telling stories and things. So I think that Lovecraft's continued influence at least right now, kind of assured because this is he, we're sort of in the the third wave of of Lovecraft appreciation and appropriation, and I think that we're likely to be seeing the same thing with Campbell's work, and I think that's what's so interesting about your interview with Alec Neville Lee, where he talks about how Campbell's legacy kind of it starts before World War II and then it really changes during World War II and continues to kind of haunt us. So let's listen to that. I'm here with Alec Nevela Lee, the author of Astounding, John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, R. L. Ron Hubbard and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. Thank you so much for joining us, Alec. Uh, thanks, Charlie Jane. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So this book is so amazing, and I learned so much about the history of science fiction and about the origins of Scientology and about kind of a lot of the origins of geek culture in general. And you know, but when we were chatting before we started, you mentioned that this was darker than you had expected it to be. And I'm curious to hear more about that. Plus also, what made you want to write about John W. Campbell to begin with? Um, So I had the luxury of kind of going into this project without knowing a lot about the golden age of science fiction, which actually ended up, I think, being an asset uh, for writing this kind of book, which is, it's it's a complicated story. And I think there are a lot of preconceived notions about that period and these writers that I kind of came in uh, without having a lot of baggage, um, which uh, I think helped. So I'm a science fiction writer as well. I've written uh, for a long time for uh, the magazine Analog, Science Fiction and Fact. My original goal was, or my, my idea was to write a book about the history of that magazine. So, so Analog has been published in various uh, forms since 1930, usually under the name Astounding. And I, I thought it'd be you know, wonderful to just kind of go back and read uh, as many issues of the magazine as I could to kind of reconstruct the history of science fiction as reflected in the pages of, of Astounding. And again, that w- might've been a great book. You know, I think I would love to read that book someday. But what happened is that uh, within probably a day of, of starting research for the project, I, I realized there'd never been a biography of John W. Campbell. And, and Campbell was the editor of Astounding for its most famous period, a huge figure in science fiction, you know, very controversial for good reason, but you know, tremendously powerful and important. And I, I was amazed, and I still am, that there had never really been a full biography of Campbell because... I knew right away this was a great subject for a book. He, he's the kind of person who deserves like like a big biography. And it's one of those books I knew was going to happen eventually. And I, I kind of wanted to write it. So I kind of pivoted and said, okay, this is a biography now. 
And from there, it kind of expanded. Uh, I was told by my editor that Campbell, while a key figure in the science fiction community, is not as well known as some other writers, which is true. And she asked me if I could expand the book to kind of make it a group biography instead. And I said, well, you know, I've got Asimov, Heinlein, and, and Hubbard. And she said, great. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of grew to become more of a group portrait of these four writers, uh, you know, their family and friends, and also just like the community of science fiction as it kind of emerged in the mid-30s through mid-70s. And uh, yeah, so it, I think, again, I kind of benefited from going in without a lot of, without a real sense of what I was getting into, uh, because it ended up being, you know, much more intensive and much stranger than I could have ever imagined. Yeah. And part of what was so fascinating about this, reading this book is seeing how, you know, Campbell and Hubbard, especially, but also Heinlein and even Asimov, to some extent, created these mythologies about themselves and kind of, you know, made up stories about themselves to make themselves more epic, larger than life. I'm kind of curious as to what you ended up feeling about their kind of their obsession with writing about what they called the superior man in their fiction and how this led to them trying to create maybe cults of cults of personality around themselves. So to me, you know, one of the reasons why you read or write literary biography is to see how the life of the author affects the fiction. And in this case, those connections are very clear. I think Campbell especially, uh, again, a very flawed uh, figure, very ambitious. You know, when he was younger, he wanted to be a great inventor or a great scientist, and, you know, that didn't really happen. And so he kind of transferred all of those ambitions to his editorship of Astounding. And he said, we're going to write stories that, you know, talk about cultural change and kind of give readers the tools to think effectively about the future. And, uh, you know, he he drew other writers like Heinlein uh, who had similar impulses. You know, they, they, they wanted to change the world through, uh, you know, the stories they were writing and, and influence writers' lives and, and, you know, ultimately influence the world beyond fiction itself. But, you know, it, it's interesting because one thing that you notice is that a lot of these stories kind of center around a certain kind of protagonist, you know, who is called the competent man. Right. You know, it's it's a very loaded term. But, you know, this is a refinement of the pulp hero that Campbell and his writers kind of inherited. If you look at, you know, science fiction uh, in the pulps, which had been around for about a decade before Campbell took over Astounding, they they kind of have this formula that is in turn based on adventure fiction and like nautical fiction and, and the Western, you know, earlier pulp genres. And it has a sort of like a masculine uh, protagonist who solves problems. What Campbell does is he, he transfers that hero into space. And, and, you know, it's a great uh, narrative tool. You know, if you want to tell uh, a story of any kind, you know, it it helps to have a strong protagonist. Uh, But the way this kind of figure evolves, it's this interesting feedback loop where on on the one hand, this figure reflects the values of its writers and their assumptions. But at the same time, you know, they start to see themselves as competent men in real life. And a big part of the second half of this book and why it's kind of tragic is that when you try to apply those values outside the realm of fiction into the real world, it doesn't always go as planned. And, and in the case of Campbell and Hubbard, especially, you know, what you know, it, it ended up becoming is very different from what anyone could have expected going in. Yeah. And World War II is sort of a turning point for all of these people, all these men in different ways. Like, you know, they all had this mythology about themselves and then World War II put it to the test, both in terms of like their ability to take part 
in the war, but also in terms of the nuclear bomb, which was something that, that Campbell had been obsessed with beforehand. And he always described himself as a nuclear physicist, but actually did not really understand, it seems like, the, the actual mechanics. I mean, he tried. He, he obviously, he really wanted to prove that he understood it, even by like violating state secrets. But, but can you talk more about like how World War II was kind of a turning point for all of these? Yeah. I mean, one thing, you know, I, I think about this a lot these days because um, one thing I've learned some writing this book and also reading the news is that these like global crises, you know, if you're a certain kind of person, you see a war or like a like a massive catastrophe as kind of your chance to prove yourself and to kind of advance the objectives you have for yourself in your own life. And, and this is very true of Campbell and the others. You know, when after Pearl Harbor, you know, the, the, the first thought is how can I not so much make a difference, but how can I make an impact? How can I kind of become the hero in real life that I've written about in my stories? And in case of the, in the case of Campbell and Heinlein, you know, this, well, Heinlein had a very, he was very patriotic. And so he enlists and I think does what I think, you know, ended up being productive work in the Navy as did Asimov. Campbell's idea of making a contribution to the war effort was to come up with like a big super weapon or a big technical innovation that would turn the course of the war. You know, he he kind of wished and, and retroactively that he'd been in the Manhattan Project. You know, he would have loved to have been among, like in that circle of scientists. He, he didn't have the background, but he kind of thought he did. And so there's this like amazing series of letters that Campbell sent to Heinlein in the 40s, uh, where he's like pitching ideas for weapons or sabotage tactics, you know, none of which really work, but this is kind of the, the person he thinks he is. He thinks he is the competent man who can come up with these things basically at his desk that are, are going to make a difference. And then Hubbard, you know, who's been writing nautical fiction his entire life, says, I'm going to join the Navy and be a pirate. I'm, I'm going to actually kind of be the guy who I've written about. And, and it was terribly. I mean, he he totally blows it. And I think- He got a bunch of people killed. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, I mean, it, there could be like no more extreme like- version of the disparity between the person that he thought he was and what he actually ended up becoming. And, and I think that he, he realized this deep down. I think that insecurity actually fed into a lot of what happened later on with uh, Scientology and, and Dianetics. It's it's super interesting. The the thing about nuclear physics, it feels like for Campbell, you have these like two obsessions, one of which is nuclear energy and nuclear physics, and the other of which is psychology, and this drive to turn psychology into a, an exact science, which gives us, you know, psychohistory and various other things like psychohistory and Asimov's foundation, but also then gives us Dianetics, which Campbell was all in on. Why do you think he was so obsessed with like trying to create like a a, a hard science of psychology? I think he kind of came at it from two angles. I mean, one is just his desire to make a great discovery of any kind. From a fairly early point, Campbell saw science fiction as a laboratory. And he said, we have all these smart people. I'm smart. Uh, we're really good at coming up with these interesting scenarios. So maybe someday a science fiction writer who I am editing will end up with a discovery that is going to change the world. And, you know, that's the nice thing about psychology is that you, can, you kind of do it in your basement. You know, it doesn't require a lot of equipment. You know, you don't have to have access to a big lab. You just need two guys in, in a room. And, and, you know, so I think on the one hand, psychology was a convenient field to explore because it didn't require any special resources. Uh, and the other thing that you mentioned is the, the bomb. You know, Campbell did come out justifiably of uh, World War II with, uh, you know, he was very concerned about the prospect of uh, nuclear war. He saw psychology as the answer. You know, he, he basically said, you know, to prevent World War III, we have to come up with an exact science of the human mind that will forestall conflict in the future. And, and so when he, uh, you know, works with Hubbard, 
and develops this therapy, the way he sells it to his readers is that this is our answer to the atomic bomb. You know, it's a race between psychology and the bomb, and the result is going to determine whether or not mankind survives. So, so those two impulses are very much connected in his mind. Yeah, and you know, it's the whole ideology of scientific progress, which feels like it was very central to Campbell, in which the reality of the bomb seems to have challenged for him a little bit, um, is super fascinating. A couple of moments really jumped out at me in the book towards the end. One is where he's Campbell is sitting down with Barry Maltzberg. Campbell is insisting, look at all these inventions, look at all these things that have come along. Science fiction created these, we did this, science fiction writers came up with these things and then they became real, which is something I heard a lot back in the 2000s with self smartphones and iPads and a bunch of other stuff like science fiction, we created this, science fiction created this, and then Apple went and made it real. And Maltzberg is like, no, we didn't. You know, science fiction came up with a bunch of crap and some of it randomly came true. And technology advanced. It wasn't because of science fiction. And the other thing is where, you know, Asimov is trying to convince Campbell to basically stop being quite such an extreme racist and to join the civil rights movement. And Campbell's response is, I'm not interested in victims. I'm only interested in the superior man. And I'm just, you know, it's it feels like there's a kind of an indictment of this ideology of like science fiction as like progress and the perfecting of oneself, but also the improving of the world. So I'm interested in hearing more about that. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a key theme in this book, you know, and it, I think it points to one of Campbell's limitations. I mean, I think he was a, a hugely important figure, but he also, you know, was, he had a lot of, lot of you know, blind spots, you know, to put it mildly. And, uh, you know, one of them was this idea that, you know, science fiction had to be about solving problems. And it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the competent man and this sort of pulp protagonist that he refines and, and puts into space. You know, the, the idea that, that stories have to be about uh, people who are who are active, who have agency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it kind of feeds into the idea of these stories that are about solving problems through technology. You know, one of Campbell's assumptions is that every problem is ultimately a subset of engineering. And that if you put engineers and scientists in charge, they'll be able to come up with solutions to social problems, which I think is a, is a very flawed, you know, view of, of how the world actually works. But as Malzberg, you know, points out very accurately, you know, what do you do about the people that don't have agency? You know, these are people mm -hmm. who are, are the victims uh, of technological change. Their stories are incredibly important. They matter tremendously. And, and Campbell just lacked interest in those stories. And, and I think, you know, just from a literary point of view, it, it, it constrained the, the kind of fiction he was publishing in the magazine, which was never the same after World War II or after Dianetics. Mm -hmm. From a pragmatic point of view, you know, this is a guy who wants to talk about cultural change, but he can't, he's unable to address a, a key part of it, you know, in the stories he's publishing. So that is a, a huge part of Campbell's story and, and a big part of why, you know, after 1950, he actually becomes a, a much less powerful figure. And it's, it's partially because he's unable to write the kind of stories that that moment demanded. Do you think that we would have had Dianetics or Scientology in the same form without the nuclear bomb? Uh, I think it would have been framed differently early on. Um, a lot of a lot of this stuff comes out of Hubbard's personality, and and so that that stuff I think would have remained the same. But Campbell played a huge role in presenting it and shaping it and kind of giving it a vocabulary that he thought would appeal to his uh, readers. So one thing about Dianetics that I like to talk about is people always say, oh, Hubbard just was trying to, to scam people and he thought that the best way to make money was to start a religion, which is something that he, he did actually say. 
But if you look at the actual, the earliest articles on, on Dynetics, they are pitched towards scientists. They are pitched towards uh, a professional circle. And they really wanted to publish the first article in a scientific journal or a medical journal. And it was only after they failed to, to get any interest that, you know, Campbell kind of fell back on astounding uh, as his second choice. You look at Scientology now, I mean, the language of Scientology has fossils, like a fossilized remnant of that first phase that Campbell influenced. And, and later on, it kind of diverged from that because Hubbard was not really a science fiction fan. He wrote a lot of science fiction, but it was mostly for the money. His inclinations were actually very different. His, his vocabulary came from other sources, more mystical sources, more even like nautical uh, sources, uh, right. which, which you see later on. But, you know, there is still this sort of like core of scientific language that is preserved in Scientology. And, and again, I think it comes out of the fact that Campbell had a particular audience in mind. And, and yeah, they, they were deeply concerned by the bomb. And, and on the one hand, it, this really is what Campbell thought, you know, this new therapy would do. It, it would serve as a an answer to the threat of, of nuclear war. But it was also a, a, a rhetorical tool. It was, you know, his way of saying you should take this seriously, given the people he was trying to reach. Part of what's interesting about what's fascinating and, and compelling and gripping about your book is, in addition to showing us how all of these things that are kind of the bedrock of science fiction, everything from the three laws of robotics to foundation to Heinlein's future history to Scientology all came out of this, these relationships with Campbell, which I hadn't fully appreciated before. It also kind of shows how the dark side of geek culture was was emerging during this time. There's a lot of bullying in your book. There's a lot of like really you know, horrible behavior. There's people boasting that they could drive anyone insane. So there's one guy in the book who's described as being able to ruin any fandom. It's actually Donald Wolheim who became a right. hugely important editor later on. Yeah, I know. And, you know, Daw Books is still around. Was it kind of upsetting to read about, like, the the birth of, like, think, you know, basically this is the precursor to, like, a lot of the dark side of geekdom that we're seeing nowadays, kind of. Yes. No, this is very true. Um, one of the big things that I took away from my research is that if you look at the dynamics of fan culture in the 30s, it's basically the same. Like, like those impulses haven't changed. And, and um, if you look at, you know, these controversies and these these like little wars between clubs that happened in New York, they're the same uh, as the similar conflicts you see on Twitter or on Reddit, you mm -hmm. know, except they happen much more slowly. You know, they happen, <laughs> they happen via these mimeographed fanzines and right. letters columns. And so it takes months for the, these things to unfold. But, you know, I mean, these were young guys, uh, mostly men. And I would say, you know, it, it, it draws a certain kind of obsessive personality, you know, and, and you kind of see this pattern, you know, the, the kind of conflict you, you end up with reflects the people who are going to start these clubs in the first place. And, and I think that's true now, but it's been accelerated. It's been it's been you know made vastly more powerful by technology. Yeah, and it's just this it's very macho this very macho ethos. Again, it gets back to the superior man kind of thing of like nobody everybody's posturing, everybody's being kind of a dick. I actually felt a little bad for Asimov when he goes to this party and they hand him Heinlein hands him what he says is a coke and it turns out to be an alcoholic beverage. And Asimov doesn't drink. And it's just kind of this really, it's very minor, but it just feels like kind of cruel and fucked up. Yeah. And all these guys are trying to establish their territory, you know, and mm -hmm. kind of like, like and, and the pecking order. You figure out, you know, like who is like the, 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 like the big man in the room. Campbell was usually the big man. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's this interesting dynamic where he does dominate conversations and impose his thoughts on others. And that, that's a big part of why he's able to have the sort of outsized influence on science fiction he, he did have. 
Right. And people had to kiss his ring, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was there anything that you couldn't include in the book because it was just too extreme or too weird? Or were there things that you were pressured to kind of dial back on the nastiness of? Um, I mean, I put all the weird stuff I could into it. And I was never pressured by anyone, you know, to not do that. I, I will say that going back, the one thing I do wish the book had more of was a, a deeper discussion of Asimov's behavior toward women. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I, I've written about this elsewhere at greater length, partially because I kind of see it as uh, an area that I, I wish I'd dwelled on a bit more in the book. Because right now the book spends a couple of pages on it. And, mm -hmm. and I do think I, I, I put it, I, I kind of put it out there in a way that it had not been discussed before. So just to be clear, Asimov was a serial groper. He would engage in all kinds of un unwanted mm -hmm. touching and, and worse at conventions, usually with young female fans. And this also mm -hmm. extended to secretaries at the publishers where, he, you know, where he worked or, you know, who, who were putting out his books and, you know, just women he met casually. So, so and this went on for years. I mean, decades. It, it really is like a huge part of his personality that he, he talks about and, and kind of treats it as innocuous. And, and one of the big things that I um, do talk about elsewhere, but not as much in the book as I would have liked, is how this affected the community. You know, it, it really did affect how women were perceived and how they felt, uh, you know, as science fiction writers and fans. It's a big part of his legacy. And, and I think if I went back now and had the chance to revise it, I would bring out that theme a bit more strongly. Yeah, and actually that leads me to my final question, which is about the women in this book, which is something I've been dying to ask you about. You know, another thing that I was really astonished by is is the all of these women who are super central to the the field who I've never even heard of before, like Donya Stewart and both of Heinlein's wives, and Campbell had a a, a woman there, I think named Pratt working with him in the office. Okay, Tarrant. Tarrant, that's right. Sorry, Tarrant. You know, they were they were doing a lot of the work and they were getting none of the credit and they were probably doing a lot of the writing. Was it kind of surprising to realize how much their how their contributions had kind of gone unsung? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was a huge part of the story for me. And, um, you know, like one of my favorite anecdotes in the whole book is this uh, story where um, Campbell and Heinlein were thinking about enlisting, you know, somewhere during the war and, and Campbell was concerned about the magazine. He thought the magazine would kind of fall apart without him. And, and Heinlein li literally says, I think that Donia... And Leslin, their wives, could do as good a job or better of running the magazine um, as, as you could, which I think is interesting because it, it reflects the huge role they had in their husband's careers. I mean, Donia clearly was an important influence on Campbell's writing as it became more mature and, and you know, became closer to what we think of now as modern science fiction. And Leslin, you know, I mean, Heinlein would sit at the kitchen table and work out plots with her. And she, you know, he, he praised her as like the best sort of story doctor on the West Coast. And what happens is that they, they all get divorced. They remarry later on. And the previous wife gets kind of written out of that story. You know, they, they marry very different kinds of women later on. But yeah, I mean, I think a big part of what happens is that, yeah, just sort of on a, like a biographical level, they get erased, you know, as not convenient to the narrative. And this is even more true of Hubbard's wives, uh, his first two wives, who, oh again, God, were, yeah. were interesting people, you know, who, you know, obviously had the misfortune of getting involved with Hubbard at an earlier phase in his career. And it's only the, the last one, Mary Sue uh, Hubbard, that uh, kind of survives into his official biography. Because again, they, they, they go back and they revise things that don't fit that picture. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Alec, where can people find you online? Uh, well, you know, uh, the name is Alec Nebalali. It's, it's pretty distinctive. So if you search for me, you'll find uh, Twitter, you'll find my blog, uh, other, other places like that. Um, so yeah, so, so please reach out. My contact information is on the blog and I love hearing from readers. So if anyone wants to, uh, you know, say hello or, or reach out, that'd be great. 
that is just so interesting. I hadn't really understood how much this myth of the competent man starts really early in science fiction and then undergoes this incredible mutation during World War II. It it was just so intriguing to see like this group of or to hear about this group of men who really thought of themselves as heroes and then they they go through World War II and suddenly they're like, wait, what is heroism? What do we even do? Like, and you know, like in some cases they decide, okay, let's turn to cults, um, you know, and, you know, in, in the case of Asimov, it's much more like let's turn to technology and like maybe robots will save us. And yeah, it's super interesting. And Campbell's like obsession with the atomic bomb is so creepy and it makes you realize like how much people's lives were just completely altered forever by that war. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, I the thing that I found super compelling about Alec's book, which made it such a gripping read, is that you really get kind of sucked into being invested in these kind of weird dudes and their obsessions and their kind of mythology of themselves, where they see themselves as the kind of archetypes of these heroic figures that they're writing about. And then they actually have a moment where their kind of heroic image of themselves is put to the test and they completely, more or less fail to rise to the occasion. I mean, I think Heinlein and Asimov were kind of marginally helpful during World War II, but it's not like, uh, as Alex said, none of them really gets to become like the hero. None of them like solves the problem of World War II with, with the power of their minds. It is the moment where they all take a dark turn. And that's the moment where Campbell becomes more of a of a really intense fascist and more obsessed with white supremacy. And that is the moment that starts giving us Scientology as well. And it's such an interesting thing to look at and like Alec lays it out so beautifully and it's interesting to think about that in the context of like Campbell and Lovecraft as these figures who for better or for worse were still kind of living with the the kind of ruins or the kind of relics of of their worldviews kind of all around us and you know I think that what part of what's good about this is that we can kind of pick and choose and we can kind of reappropriate and maybe at some point there will be more of a conscious effort to take Campbell's legacy and like the competent man and all that stuff and all of his kind of like his tropes that he really developed around exploration and around kind of like problem solving and kind of recontextualize it the way that people have been doing for Lovecraft like there'll be more stories that actually explicitly kind of critique that or take place from the point of view of, of people who were excluded from that. I think that that's something that would be really interesting to see. Yeah, I think the big question, which you've sort of been answering in what you just said, is how do we acknowledge the contributions of these men, but not fall prey to their racism and sexism, and also just kind of authoritarian bullying? Because you know, they weren't just people who had crappy ideas. They also were kind of the boss of their communities and were, yeah. not, were not good guys. You know, they were, they fostered competitiveness. They fostered a kind of one-upmanship. They were not kind leaders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And, you know, they they both, I think, had this sense that fandom and science fiction had an influence and a meaning like far beyond the pages of their magazines and that they really did want to influence the course of human history. And to a certain extent, 
they have. You know, they've they've entered both of them helped create a whole discourse around the future and around our past and our relationship to the cosmos. And we're still struggling with that legacy. And I think for me, books like Alex's book um, help to kind of dispel the mythology of these men, like help to show them as just people instead of great men. And that that's kind of what we need to hold on to. Like we need to to tear down the statues to them, as it were, to stop the idealizing, to stop kind of honoring them. But we also need to remember them and remember where those tropes that we love come from. You know, the tentacle trope, the the dark cosmic mystery at the at the bottom of the ocean or in deep space, like those come from Lovecraft. They come from a place of trying to imagine a superior race, basically, and and what its position is in the cosmos. But it doesn't have to be that. You know, it can be a way of thinking about an alien history. It can be a way of thinking about what it feels like to immigrate to a new place where everyone seems like a monster or where everyone makes you feel like a monster. And we can still play with these ideas and these tropes without becoming Lovecraft and Campbell, you know, without buying into their bullshit And it's a difficult line to walk, but I think that's where we're headed. I think that's the path that science fiction is on and fantasy is on and that, you know, we always risk sliding into dark places. But I think that as long as we keep in mind the real history of these men, that we're less likely to make the mistakes that they made. Actually, the good thing about somebody being very influential is that it kind of is a problem that solves itself. Like, for example, I've never read any Lovecraft. I haven't read a single word that Lovecraft ever wrote. (laughs) But I've read people who were influenced by Lovecraft. I've read people who were kind of responding to Lovecraft. I've read at this point, I think that a lot of the stuff that I read is third generation. Like it's people responding to people to responding to Lovecraft or people influenced by people who were influenced by Lovecraft. I have no need to ever go and read Lovecraft because his influence has permeated into other better writers. Like there are people who are much better writers than Lovecraft, at least from what I understand of what his prose. Yeah, no, he's sort of famous for having like cheesy, florid prose. There are much better writers who are borrowing from Lovecraft's kind of, you know, ideas or his his tropes. And those people are much more worth reading. And similarly, okay, so one of Campbell's big authors was Robert A. Heinlein. And You know, I've read some Heinlein. I'm not a huge Heinlein fan. I'm going to just admit it. I hope I don't get in trouble. I am also not a Heinlein fan. I'm an anti-fan. Right. But you don't have to. Nobody ever needs to read Heinlein. And I don't think anybody ever will read Heinlein. Like, again, like, I don't think young people are going to be reading Heinlein now. People can read John Scalzi, who basically has admitted on, like, many, many, many occasions in my hearing that he basically just writes what he calls Heinleinian fiction. And he is mm-hmm. writing in Heinlein's ethos. But, you know, Scalzi's maybe a little more, he's more progressive. He's more aware of, you know, other perspectives. And he's a little bit more savvy about some of the tropes that he's handling. And so you don't need to read Heinlein because you can just read Scalzi or you can read, you know, Becky Chambers for that matter. You can mm-hmm. read a bunch of other people who are, playing with things that Heinlein came up with, but just doing it in a, I would say, in a better way, in a more interesting way. And, you know, I'm not going to cast aspersions on Heinlein's prose, but I think that his work 
is of the time that it was written. His prose style is of the time that it was written. It's much harder for someone who's used to reading books written in the 21st century to go back and read kind of 1960s, 1940s even prose. Mm-hmm. And I think that the same kind is true of for, turgid, great man style. Yeah, it's just t- it's, story. A, it's a very different style of writing. And Asimov, I think, is completely impenetrable to anybody who was not born in the mid 20th century. And I think that, uh, again, Nobody really, like nobody under the age of 40, let's say, has ever really read Asimov at this point. I think people read people who were influenced by Asimov. I totally agree with what you're saying, that there's no need to read these men uh, in order Mm -hmm. to be a science fiction fan or even to just enjoy science fiction literature. However, I think maybe one way to think about what you're saying and, and about this whole issue is that we can read these guys. I've read a ton of Lovecraft. um, But the real difference is we don't have to pay homage to them. We can read them. We can say, sure, we see how they were important in the development of this genre. We get that, that this is what in the 1930s people were reading in the same way that today we're reading Nora Jemison. But like I said, we don't have to honor them. We don't have to heroize them or or idealize them. And that's the difference, right, between, you know, kind of the old way of treating Campbell and Lovecraft. They were honored. They were, you know, treated as heroes. So we can read them. We're not obligated to read them. Nobody exactly. is required to read Heinlein or Asimov or or Lovecraft, or any of those other guys. Certainly nobody's obligated to read Hubbard. Nobody is required <laughs> to read them. They're not, like, there's been a lot of discussion about this actually since the most recent Worldcon, where people are saying, well, you can't really be a science fiction person if mm-hmm. you haven't read these. Nobody has to read this stuff unless you really want to. If you are like, yeah, you know, I really want to see where these tropes came from. I think it's interesting to go back to the beginning. I'm a completist, or I just really want to see, like, the originals. But I don't think you're required. And there's a quote that I keep thinking about as we're talking about this, which I was just trying to find online and I can't find it, but the novelist V.S. Pritchett wrote an essay about Edgar Allan Poe back in the day. And he said that Edgar Allan Poe was, quote, a third rate writer, but a fertilizing exclaimer, meaning that basically Poe's writing wasn't great. It was fine, but he inspired a lot of other people to write other stuff that was actually better. And I think that that's true of a lot of our heroes in general is that, you know, we sh- we can be glad that they were there and that they inspired other stuff, but we don't need to feel like their writing is sacred in some way. That's right. And I think sacred is such a good word to use in this context because, yeah, you don't have to pay homage to them. You don't have to worship them. And in fact, their ideas and their tropes belong to us now. They are ours. Yep. They're in our hands we can do what we want to with them. That's how writing and art work. We inherit ideas and we change them. And if we didn't change them, I don't think we would be human anymore. I think I'm having a Star Trek moment of like, what makes us human is change. Like that's how we sure. progress as a civil as a bunch of different civilizations and as as humanity. That's I think what the big pushback really is right now is it's not against you know, ever talking about these men or ever using their ideas, it's against the idea of deifying them, of turning them into like saints whose work must always be, 
paid attention to and read in the original and appreciated and, and thought of as great. It's like, nope, you know, like, sure, this is the origin story of these tropes. Big deal. We've we've done a lot better things with those tropes. Yay. <laughs> Agree. All right. Well, it is true that our opinions are correct. So I'm glad that we reached <laughs> this, this agreement. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to end. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. You can support us on Patreon. Yes, we have a Patreon. And Woo! if you give us a little cash, you can give us anywhere from $1 to a billion dollars. Um, you get audio extras, you get essays and writing prompts and excerpts from our un- as yet unpublished writing every week. And you can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can get this podcast probably where you got it in the first place, but also anywhere where great podcasts can be found. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much to our intrepid producer, Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission, and to Chris Palmer, who wrote the music. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.